And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, of course, as uh, we continue to roll into this first week of June. And yesterday, markets kind of uh, struggled a little bit during the day, kind of opened up early in the morning, kind of sold off during the day after the ISM Services Index came out yesterday morning showing, well, weaker activity in the services sector. Now, this was something that I had talked about here recently and uh, actually covered it in a recent blog post as well is that if you take a look at the economy and the breakdown of the economy overall, about 77% of the economy is services driven. So you think about it, right? It's, it's Uber, it's Lyft, it's Grubhub, it's all these services that we use on a regular basis. That makes up a very big chunk of our economy. The remainder of that is manufacturing. So that's the, that's the real tough nuts and bolts of building stuff in America and, and things that you know we have started outsourcing over the last several decades to other countries that can do it cheaper. We outsource our inflation to import deflation. And this is why cost of living has remained you know fairly cheap relative to you know what we can what we consume, right? And this is why we continue to ramp up debt. We buy more stuff, we buy bigger houses, you know, bigger TVs because they keep getting cheaper because of our outsourcing of labor and manufacturing. So services, a primary driver of the economy. Here's the problem with this story. Services do not have a big multiplier effect in the economy as compared to manufacturing. See, back in the 1970s, when our economy was growing around 8%, we were, th those numbers were reversed. We were about 80% manufacturing, 20% services. Manufacturing has a, a what we call a multiplier effect. Every dollar spent to manufacture a good or a product has a four or five dollar multiplication within the economy. So you think about if I'm going to manufacture um, an automobile, right? So not only am I spending money to manufacture that automobile, paying the, the, the workers in the plant to put the car together, I'm also having to buy the parts to build that car from other manufacturers who have to buy commodities from other people, et cetera, so forth and so on. Houses, building houses, same way. Big multiplier effect in the economy. Services, not so much. I use a service, I pay the person for the service. Most of that service is what they generated personally. So there isn't a lot of multiplier effect in the economy. So it doesn't have that same impact on creating economic growth. And this is one of the reasons why over the last couple of decades, economic growth continues to slow, not just because of the debt, which is a problem, but also because we've become more of a service-based economy, which has a lower multiplier effect in the economy. So yesterday, the ISM Services Index came out. Now we had talked about this before, that services were still in expansionary territory, and since they make up 77% of the economy, that was why the economy has yet to go into recession. And despite all the claims and, and expectations of having a recession in the economy, it hasn't occurred yet because of all the monetary input that we've put into the economy, but also because, again, services are continuing to remain in expansionary territory. Yesterday, that number came out right at the cusp of going into contractionary territory. We were about 50.3 yesterday on the index, but the vast majority of the components of the ISM services index dropped rather sharply. 
And in fact, a couple of those like employment actually went into to contractionary territory. So again, if services continue to weaken next month, that will, that index will now be will join the manufacturing index in the contractionary territory. And that is another good sign and has typically been a fairly good indicator of recessions when both services and manufacturing are both in contractionary territory. Again, uh, we go back to 2011 during the debt ceiling debate and we had the Japanese shutdown after Japan had the earthquake and the tsunami. Um, the economy, we had a manufacturing recession but not a services recession, so we never had an official recession in the economy. Same thing in 2015, 2016, when we were having the Euro crisis with Brexit, everything else, we had a manufacturing slowdown. Um, that was in contractionary territory, but services remained elevated, and so we did not have a recession. So this has occurred before where we've had this kind of slowdown in the economy, everybody expecting a recession, but it didn't occur because services remained fairly strong. That's now finally starting to show some weakness. So again, we'll keep a close eye on this, but yesterday, um, as we talked about yesterday morning, the S&P was already trading up well into three standard deviation territory. And we said yesterday, hey, likely going to have a bit of a correction here at some point, work off some of that overbought condition. All you need is kind of the news or the catalyst to make that occur. So that ISM report yesterday was a good first kind of shot across the bow that weakened the market a little bit. This morning, futures are down a bit this morning, and so we'll see how the market responds today. But we're seeing a little bit of that kind of correctional action in the markets over the last day or two. Nothing major here. And again, we talk about a correction. That doesn't mean, you know, another, you know, 20% bear market, anything like that. It just means you're going to get a bit of a pullback, probably somewhere around 4160 on the S&P 500, somewhere around that, that kind of uh, below 4200 range, maybe above 4100. Uh, but somewhere in there between 4100 and 4150, on the S&P 500 would be a reasonable pullback. And if the market can hold on to that level, that will be kind of an, a good opportunity to add some money you know, to equities at that point and, and continue on because again, this bullish trend in the market remains well intact. So we need to, to honor that and pay attention to it. So use these kind of opportunities of pullbacks to add to exposure in the markets. Again, we'll just have to pay attention to this as we go along. The risk of recession you know, it's certainly still prevalent, but it's probably somewhere in 2024, not anything that we're going to see this year just because of all the, the monetary liquidity that's still in the economy. Savings rates for households still remain elevated, even though the vast majority of those savings are in the upper end of income earners. They're still elevated. That means there's still a lot of money sitting there. Um, also, if we take a look at the Inflation Reduction Act and, 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 and other construction spending that has been approved by, and, uh, approved by Congress, that is really just starting to kick in. So that money also hitting the economy as well, that's helping kind of support some of the economic activity right now. But again, that will all kind of start to work itself out as we get into 2024. So the, the risk of recession is still there. It's just probably sometime later next, you know, first, second quarter of, of 2024 not in 2023, which a lot of people have been expecting. Um, outside of that, oil prices, you know, after yesterday's, we, we talked about uh, Saudi Arabia doing the million, uh, the one million barrel production cut. Oil prices kind of sold off a little bit yesterday. They're under a little bit of pressure this morning as well. But again, oil prices just really haven't gone anywhere now since really the beginning of May. And if we go back, there's kind of the same level that we, they were back in March. We've just really kind of been just trading sideways in oil prices. Can't really get a lift here. 
We are moving into summer, of course. That's a much bigger driving season that will pro uh, provide some demand. We're, you know, this, so again, with oil kind of sitting on the bottom side of its range right now, there is some upside uh, potential for oil prices. And again, we've kind of been looking for this rotation in the market from technology and semiconductors um, into some of these other more oversold sectors of the market. Energy would be one of those. Uh, also, too, taking a look at um, gold prices as well. They really haven't done much either going all the way back to, to March. They've just pretty, pretty much trading sideways here. Again, gold really hasn't got a lift from either, you know, more panic in the market. Gold is more of a fear trade. Uh, inflation is coming down, so it's pulling some of the, the, the lift out of gold prices. But also, there's just really no fear in the markets at all right now. Very, very complacent market. And you can tell that by taking a look at the volatility index, which is at a, a very, very low level. Um, if you take a look at, at volatility index, it's now trading almost three standard deviations oversold. So again, um, as we talked about having a correction in the market, the volatility index suggests that we're gonna get a correction in the markets probably sooner than later. We'll see that volatility index kind of move back up into the mid 17s to 18s. But again, this current level where we are right now suggests you're gonna have a bit of a correction here uh, sometime soon. All right, quick break. We're gonna come back, talk about breadth of the market. That's been one of the big topics. Uh, article about that on the website this morning, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll talk about it right after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Oh, Red, I declare, I plum missed that candy coffee. Whatever am I gonna do? Don't you worry, little darling. We'll watch it again on our YouTube channel. Why, Red? I never! The Real Investment Show YouTube channel has all of our past presentations from Candid Coffee and Lunch and Learn, the special topic discussions, and all of our live show recordings preserved for you. Subscribe now to the Real Investment Show YouTube channel or look for the link on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, as I said just for the break, uh, I've got an article out this morning on the website talking about the breadth of the market. And, and it's interesting because when you take a look at some of the more generic data, it suggests that the market may be a bit healthier than what it is, actually. And so once you start to kind of dig down into some of this data, then you kind of start finding some, some different, you know, kind of different pictures. But one thing we've talked about recently is this, you know, very, you know, kind of interesting move that we've had in the market because, you know, as the markets have been going up, it's really been driven a lot. It's, it's they, this AI, AI hype, right? Artificial intelligence. Everything is, you know, whatever's artificial intelligence has been just going off through the moon. And it was interesting yesterday, Apple had their big Apple announcement day and they introduced a new, you know, a new MacBook and talked about their new iPhone and um, introduced their new VR headset, which is just just a, a smidge. I mean, if you if we really want to get into VR, 35, 3600 bucks will get you a VR headset, right? So something pretty much everybody can just, you know, if you don't have one yet, I don't know why you haven't bought one. They're just 3600. I mean, it's like no big deal. Um, you know, left pocket change for most people. I mean, um, but they didn't mention AI once in their investor day yesterday, which I thought was interesting. 
because that's been the rage as of late. Um, but of course, you know, if you are the king, you don't need to tell people you're the king. Right. So, you know, that's just kind of really kind of where this comes down. But um, this this whole AI chase has has really created a lot of attention here because it's the, what's been driving the markets. And again, if you take a look at the market this year as a function, without the top seven stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, the market would be flat this year versus being up 10% for the year. And if we take a look at, for instance, this is a chart of the NASDAQ equal weighted index versus the NASDAQ market cap weighted index. And this is just the differential. Oops, um, hold on a second. It uh, shifted on me real quick. We'll get to the next chart in a second. Um, but what this shows is, is, is as of the end of May, uh, when I was writing this, this article, there was a 15%, almost a 16% spread between the NASDAQ in performance, between the NASDAQ market cap weighted index and the market, uh, the equal weighted index. And that's uh, a level we've not seen at any point in history, right? It's just ex extremely elevated. But we can also see this in, in terms of, and we've talked about this before, is in SimpleVisor, we provide this analysis of relative and absolute rotation in the markets. And, and what this is, is the, the positioning of the market, the internals of the market, the sectors of the market relative to the index itself. And it tells us what's really overbought versus what's really oversold. And, you know, again, not surprisingly, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, right, Meta, that's, that's communications, technology, and discretionary and Amazon makes up the almost the entire discretionary sector. Meta makes up a Meta and Google make up the big communication sector. Everybody else is kind of just small parts of that. So not surprisingly, those three are, are just far and away the big performers this year. Everything else is just kind of in the lower left hand quadrant, sitting over here not doing a whole lot. And this is why it's been a bit frustrating for investors this year. And, you know, we can see this even when we look down into factors like the mega cap index. So if you take a look at uh, ETFs like the mega cap growth index, ETF, MGK versus small cap, mid cap, the Russell 2000, uh, the S&P 500, you know, they're all, again, lagging dramatically relative to those mega cap weighted stocks. So, again, this is why this has been a or seemingly a fairly bifurcated market in a lot of respects. And, and I thought it was interesting because Barry Ritholtz just came out recently and, and wrote an article and said, this is, you know, this, you know, this, this narrow market rally is, is, you know, not true. If you take a look at the advanced decline line um, on a percentage basis, it's like at 95% saying that every stock is kind of performing in the index. And that's not really the case. Um, you got to be careful with the advanced decline line because it measures on a daily basis, you know, what's up or what's down. So, you know, if if five stocks are up today a little bit and, and five stocks are down a little bit today and then those reverse tomorrow, your advanced decline line is still going to read the same, even though stocks aren't going anywhere. So it's it's a little bit about how the math works in, in this current market. But if we take a look at the but we can actually take a look at the actual breakdown of the market itself and, and start looking at the S&P 500 and saying, OK, well, look. Let's just take a look at the index itself and 
and, and determine what's happening with the markets. And so if we take a look at the index and just this, so I created, uh, again, my uh, computer's deciding to make its own changes this morning. Um, and so what I did was, is this is all 500 stocks in the index, in the S&P 500. And what we did was you just, just broke it down and said, okay, which ones are up and which ones are down for the year so far, right? That's what we want to know. So if we take a look at that, it's, it's, we find out that there's actually just kind of, a, again, not surprisingly, a fairly small group of stocks that are performing above what the market is returning this year and by a large margin, right? You, you just, it's, just a lar it's just a very large advance in a very small group of stocks. There's a big chunk of stocks that are, that are basically negative for the year, flat for the most part. And in fact, if we kind of zoom in just on that fact itself and just say, okay, how many stocks are up more than the market this year? Right? How many stocks are up more than the market this year? Uh, and that turned out we only have 25% of the entire index up with the market or outperforming the market this year. And that's heavily skewed by NVIDIA, Meta, AMD, Salesforce, et cetera. Right, those are the ones that have really, really been performing a lot this year. Nvidia is up like 160 percent. So the 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 reality is is though when you take a look at breadth, only 25 percent of stocks have been outperforming the index this year, and that's the most concentrated level of stocks in the index in 15 years. Now that doesn't that this isn't bearish, right? This doesn't mean anything. It just it just suggests that there's a very small narrow group of stocks that are outperforming. And and again, if we take a look at how the market's broken down, this is the most interesting part about this is the top 10 market cap weighted stocks when you take a look at market capitalization is equal to 426 stocks in the S&P 500. So in other words, the top 10 stocks have the same market cap weighting as the bottom 426 out of 500 stocks. So in other words, every dollar that goes into the S&P 500 is a, you know, a, a very big chunk of that is absorbed by those top 10 stocks. The other 426 stocks are fighting over the same amount of money, which is why you have this bifurcation in performance, you know, over time. And again, this is this is not surprising. This happens, you know, kind of, you know, historically. But again, this isn't a, a healthy market. This isn't the kind of market that, you know, has the ability to grow this way for a very long period of time. And this is the important part of this is, and, and again, this is what Bob Farrell once said, is that narrow markets are not healthy. You, you know, what, what a healthy market is a broad market where all stock, where, you know, a lot of stocks, 80% of stocks are participating, not 25%. And so you, you, this can't stay this way indefinitely. And that, that, again, this doesn't mean that we're going to have a big bear market. It doesn't mean that we're going to have this major decline, but it does mean at some point you're going to have a rotation between these leaders and the rest of the market. Because, again, you can't have a market where just three sectors are driving the markets without that eventually rotating. And we've seen this before, by the way. We just saw this last year. Last year, everything was in the tank, right? Nobody, Everybody hated FANG stocks last year. Technology was dead. I wrote an article in November of last year saying, are, are FANG stocks dead? 
and I made the case they weren't. But last year was the exact opposite of this. Energy was massively outperforming everything else in the index. This year, it's one of the worst performers. So the rotation will occur, and it doesn't necessarily mean that anything has to cause this rotation, but it will occur. Money will flow back, and investors are eventually going to say at some point, it's like, wow, I've got tremendous gains over here. This is really, really overbought. Look at that over there. It's really, really cheap. I'm going to go buy some of that. And that just causes, eventually, that just, the rotation occurs. And then when somebody starts to make that rotation, then somebody else follows and somebody else follows, and eventually the herd picks up on it and the herd rotates. That's just the way the markets work. It doesn't mean you have to have a big recession. It doesn't mean you have to have a massive downturn. You're just kind of a rotation in the markets. Now, if something happens economically, you have a recession, whatever, that could cause that rotation to happen faster. But just going back to this AI chase for a second, I just, you know, you know, just two things to remember is, is that these periods can last a lot longer than you expect. If we go back to 1999, it was all about the dot-com chase. And back in 1999, we've had these revolutions throughout history. We've talked about this before on the show. We've had the Industrial Revolution, which has been started really since the 1800s. The present's been the Industrial Revolution, but you know we went through the space race. We've gone through, um, you know, um, uh, manufacturing innovations, etc. But there's a very interesting correlation right now going on between AI stocks and and the way people are viewing AI stocks and what happened during the dot com chase in 1999, and for the entire year of 1999. It was an amazing run for stocks. Unfortunately, it ended in March of 2000, and all those gains were given up and more. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen again, but that's what history says happens to speculative chases. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Got more to talk about with you this morning right here on The Rural Investment Show. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Six-year-old David Charles Grush is a decorated former combat officer in Afghanistan who went on to work at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, and the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, where he served as the latter's representative to the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force from 2019 to 2021. Um, Mr. Grush has now turned whistleblower and is now represented by an attorney who has served as the original intelligence community inspector general and spoke with journalists um, who co-authored a 2017 piece in the New York Times revealing that the DOD spent $22.5 million on a secret program to investigate UFOs. Uh, and Ralph Blumenthal, a veteran New York Times reporter, um, corroborated the same. And uh, so what was interesting is, is, is that... Apparently, there and again, we've all kind of known this, right? You know, Area Fifty, you know, Area Fifty One out in Nevada. We've made movies about them. Is that you know, 
uh, you know, Independence Day, etc. There's always been a lot of speculation about UFOs, you know, out in the, you know, Area 51 and all of this. And of course, recently the Navy's been releasing footage about UFOs, etc. Now, whether you believe it or not is up to you. But I heard a really great explanation the other day. I was I was watching a, a documentary, and they had this PhD of you know, multiple sciences and was talking to, um, who's the, the African-American scientist, uh, Neil, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, yes. uh, but she was having a conversation with him and, and he was, he asked her, he says, well, how do you know that there's no life in outer space? And she goes, well, we don't. And she goes, think about, and this is the best explanation I've ever heard of this. And I just thought it was interesting because this article came out about we are not alone and the U.S. has retrieved craft of non-human origin, partial and intact. But she said, basically, if you think about the ocean, all the water in the ocean as space and the universe that's out there. Now, we know there's fish in the ocean, right? Because we go out in the ocean and we fish, right? So we catch fish out there. So we know there's fish out there. She goes, but if you think about the oceans as space and consider what we've actually explored in terms of space, that's about a 12, that's walk to the beach, take a 12-ounce glass, take a 12-ounce cup, fill it with water from the ocean. That's what we've explored. Now, if you look at your glass full of ocean water, there's no fish in it. And so you can you can look at that glass and say, well, there's no life out there, but we've only explored that much of space. And there, there's an old movie with Jodie Foster called Contact, <laughs> if you've ever watched it. Brent's over here nodding like he's having a conversation with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then the movie Contact, you know, her, you know, her father, she was stargazing and all this with her father. And, and, you know, she asked her father if there's life out there. And she goes, well, if there's not, it's an awful waste of space. But. So I thought that was a very interesting analogy about, you know, how much we've explored in space. And we make assumptions that there's nothing out there in the universe but us because we're that narcissistic. Um, but we've only explored such a small amount of what's actually out there. So, but it is interesting. So there's an interesting article out today. And again, this, this whole whistleblower issue is going to be interesting to talk about because he's revealing a whole lot of information. As an example, he says that according to unclassified version of the whistleblower complaint, Grush has direct knowledge that UAP related classified information has been withheld and or concealed from Congress by elements of the intelligence community to purposely and intentionally thwart legitimate congressional oversight over the unidentified uh, aerial program. So thought that was interesting. So we may not be alone after all. But if you if you get to see that interview with Neil deGrasse, uh, deGrasse Tyson, it's actually very fascinating. It, it's, it's a really fascinating piece about space and what's out there and what we actually know versus what we don't know. Anyway, okay, the sideline back to back to finance, because, <laughs> you know, that's obviously more important than, you know, being eaten by aliens. Um, <clears throat> So talking a little bit about, you know, this narrow breadth of the markets that we had, you know, or we currently have right now. And again, as I was saying, this eventually ends. And if you go back to 1999, it was all about the Internet. And there's a lot of similarities between today and what we saw going on back in late 1999. If you live through it, you'll remember this. But for most investors today, they've never seen this before. Right. This is an all new thing. So trees can go to the sky. We can just sell, you know, an, an abnormally large amount of stuff, et cetera. 
The problem is we go back and look at that dot-com era, we see a lot of the same similarities. Companies were just coming out and going, oh, um, I manufacture widgets, but we now have a website. We're going to sell everything online. And so when as soon as they said the term website and that we've got eyes per page, then all of a sudden their stock would just go ramping off to the moon. Whether or not they had a viable business or not was irrelevant. Pets.com had the whole sock puppet thing going on. And, you know, everybody was just running these stocks up into, into the ether on expectations that they were just going to generate billions of dollars of revenue all off the Internet. Enron was one of the big leaders in that whole advance. WorldCom, Global Crossing, Lucent Technologies, etc. And, of course, the, what happened ultimately was is that expectations of earnings and revenue, et cetera, that were going to be derived from the Internet never arrived in a lot of cases because two things happen. First of all, the expectations for revenue exceed the reality of what can actually be generated. Let's talk about NVIDIA for just a second because it's the poster child of AI. Its GPU costs between $195,000 and $250,000 each. And to do some of the AI processes that people are expecting to be done, it takes multiples of these GPUs, plus chips, plus a whole variety of other stuff. Now, you go, well, yeah, well, they're going to generate a bunch of revenue. Doing that. That's true. But think about this. How many companies are out there that can afford those types of outlays, capital-wise? There's a lot. There are a lot, right? But the price of entry into that is, is astronomical. So it's going to eliminate a lot of small cap and mid cap companies out of the whole AI chase period because they simply just don't have the capital to invest to build out the AI platforms. Here's the other problem. So NVIDIA recently came out and just said, hey, we're going to have a 50% increase in revenue next quarter. And that's sent the stock rushing off to the moon. And, and the reason was is because everybody goes, well, if they can do 50% next quarter, they can do 50% the quarter after that, 50% the quarter after that. That's not the way math works. There's what's called the law of large numbers, right? If I take a dollar and I grow it to $2, I have a 100% increase in my revenue, Right? If I go from $2 to $3, I don't have a 100% increase anymore. If I go from $3 to $4, I'm not growing at 100% anymore. If I go from $4 to $5, I'm not growing at 100%. So every time I increase my, I, even though I can increase my revenue by a dollar every single time, the rate of growth of that revenue is declining as I go. So the problem is, is right now, as an example, NVIDIA trades at 35 times price to sales. That is astronomically huge. And we've talked about the problem at 10 times price to sales. 35 times price to sales is just stupid. The company will never be able to grow fast enough to support that level of valuation. They would have to own the entire GPU market in the entire world. So let's assume they can for a second. 
Well, if I could, if I'm the only GPU provider in the world and I'm selling my product for $250,000, what do you think that is going to encourage other people to do? Come to market with a GPU may not be as good as NVIDIA's, but they'll come to the market with a decent GPU that will get the job done for half the cost. That's competition. It's how capitalism works. So the more success that NVIDIA has, the more it's going to attract other competition, which is going to dilute revenues for the company. The other side of this is that eventually, at some point, companies will have bought all the GPUs they need for whatever applications they're doing. And so the rate of acquisition, see, right now, all these companies, they need the GPUs. They got to get them today, right? So they're buying a whole bunch of them now. But once they get the majority of their applications built of whatever they're going to do, now they just need replacements or small incremental um, you know, additions, et cetera. The rate of acquisition will drop in the future. So the ability to sustain valuations becomes very problematic for NVIDIA down the road to maintain the current price-to-sales valuation. That's got to adjust. But this is what happened in 1999 with the dot-com craze. Everybody threw up a website, so forth and so on, and two things are going to happen. Same thing happened with the cloud, right? We're going to store everything up in the cloud. All of our data is going to be up in the cloud. It's going to be great. It's all in the cloud. Whatever the cloud is, it's up there. Well, the more people that are doing the cloud, the cost of providing cloud services is going down, reducing profit margins, reducing revenue, etc. Competition. Capitalism. So again, what happened in 1999 was is we had all these expectations of massive revenue growth and earnings and profitability that in March of 2000, everybody went, that's stupid. That's never going to work. The Internet's still here. We use the internet for everything, right? Nothing changed. The thesis about the internet changing the world was absolutely correct. The problem was valuations couldn't be supported by the revenues. Quick break, Rube, back on the other side. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. All right, getting ready to wrap up the show this morning as we kind of get ready to kick off uh, today. Not a lot of action happening this week in terms of economic data. Everything's really kind of, you know, got again, we had ISM yesterday, but that was kind of the big news. You know, a few little economic reports out this week. Nothing, nothing really kind of headline driving other than jobless claims on Thursday. Um Next week, of course, is the big day because uh, June the 14th is the next Fed meeting, and that's that's the will-they-won't-they they debate that we're going to have between now and then. <laughs> you know, will they hike rates? Won't they hike rates? What's going on? You know, are they going to pause? Are they not going to pause? And so markets may be a little bit stuck here again, as we've uh, kind of talked about this morning at the open. We're overbought right now. Um, markets are trading three standard deviations above their moving averages. Um, that's just some technical mumbo jumbo that just means basically you stretch the rubber band kind of as far as you can in one direction. 
And in order to stretch it again, you've got to relax it a little bit, right? So you need you need a bit of a pullback here. Or again, as we've seen recently, the market can just kind of trade sideways for a month or so, not go anywhere, and then make the next advance higher. And so we've seen a lot of that really since October of last year. These periods where the market runs up, it just kind of consolidates sideways. Everybody's expecting a big correction. It doesn't really happen. And then the markets go up again. And then we kind of consolidate, flop around a bit, markets go up again. And that's really been this kind of stair-step approach that the market's been taking since the October, October lows. Excuse me. You know, what happens next, I don't know. But, you know, everybody's focused on this idea that the Fed is going to, you know, start cutting rates. And that that rate cut keeps getting pushed out further and further and further. And what's going to drive that rate cut eventually is going to be a recession, if, if we have one. You know, one thing to consider is that, you know, when we take a look at all the data, there's certain, and I'm writing an article on this right now, uh, there's a lot of indicators that suggest that we should most definitely have a recession. Inverted yield curves, et cetera, right? All have all been very, very good preceding indicators of recession. Timing is not always great, right? Sometimes you can have an inverted yield curve and then, it's nine months later before you get a recession, right? So it can take a while. But one thing we have to also consider is, is that normally, you know, over the last two, three decades, when we've been going into a recession, we're starting at th two, three, or 4% economic growth. And so we've got to reduce that to zero. So you've got to decline by two, three, 4%. Then you get into negative growth. Now, we're talking nominal right now. So you have, you know, you're, you're running at 4%. You've got to go from 4% to zero, zero to negative one, and then you get a recession. This time, we were going from 12% annualized growth to zero. So we've got to slow the economy by 12% just to get to zero before you get into a recession. So one of the the things that's going on, and, and again, we're all expecting this recession to occur, we're, we're actually having one, right? But just not technically because we're not in negative growth. But we've had negative growth now for the last several, last year and a half. Growth has been declining. It's just still positive. You know, we've talked about this before. You know, if, if, I've, if I roll a ball down a hill and it's a very big hill, right? The ball is rolling towards the bottom of the hill. It just takes a while to get there. And that's where we are. So we have negative economic growth because we are declining towards zero. We just haven't got to negative yet. Now, the issue is, is will we get to negative? Right? You can make a case, potentially, and I'm not saying this is the absolute fact of it, but you can make a case that we've already declined by 12%. We've already had a fairly big economic contraction that should be dragging down inflation. And the way the economy works, remember, we talked about this when we did all this $5 trillion worth of stimulus, et cetera. We said, you know, what you're doing is you're dragging forward future consumption, but eventually you're going to have this void in the future that can't be filled. 
And so we've had that for about the last year, right? We've had this void that people are running out of money. They're they're just they're they're cutting back on spending. We're seeing all this, right? We're seeing them run up debt, cut back on spending, et cetera. So we we know all that's going on. And at some point, you're gonna basically run out of stuff, right? And you're gonna build up some pent-up demand that people are gonna have to start consuming again just as a function of the economy. Uh, businesses are going to have to, you know, build up some inventories. They've had, we've had big inventory reductions. We're going to see them build up some inventories. Consumers are going to have to buy some stuff just because of, you know, they're they're running out of stuff, and so they need stuff. They got to buy, and so you start to kind of see that that bottoming process of the economy. In other words, the the economy kind of hits a trough. It says, okay, so. I'm just to the point where things aren't getting any worse, but they're just not getting any better. Everybody's kind of treading water. Now, normally that occurs when you're in a recession, right? But again, just one thing to consider. I'm not saying this is the case, so don't don't walk away from this going, oh, well, Lance said we're not having a recession. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying consider the fact that we've already had a non-recession recession because we've gone from 12% growth towards zero. Now, it may go negative next year. Again, it's just we've got to get there, right? It's it's a function of time. And we still have all these rate hikes, et cetera, that are still weighing on the economy. So we still may see slower economic growth. Again, the, the ISM services index yesterday was a good indicator of that. Services are slowing down. That's 77% of the economy. If that goes negative, you're going to go into a recession. That's the only thing right now. Services are about the only thing keeping us out of recession at the moment. So we'll see. But again, just something to consider, you know, as you're in your process and thinking about your investments, in your portfolio and how you're positioning things. Just one thing to consider is, is that while we're still in positive economic growth and we haven't had a recession yet. We've been we've had a very big decline on a historical basis. We've had a very, very big decline in economic growth from the last peak. That decline in economic growth is equivalent to the decline in economic growth that we had during the financial crisis on a percentage basis. It's just that the financial crisis started with 3% economic growth and then went negative. That was the difference. So, again, just... You know, what the only thing I want you to, you know, and this is the thing that we talk about here every day, and and again, just trying to add a little bit of logic to the conversation, is there's so much stuff out in the media that you watch and you hear and people are saying, et cetera, is, you know, one camp is doom and gloom, the other camp is it's all fine, it's it's you know, it's terrific, don't worry about everything, it's it's all awesome. There's the truth always lies somewhere in the middle. And I don't know what it is, right? I have no idea whether or not we're going to have a recession or not. Nobody does. We can all make some assumptions. We can make some guesses. We can certainly look at the data, and that's what we try to do for you, is just paying attention to the data and, and letting the data tell us what's going on. But it's always important to kind of just remember to analyze kind of both sides of the ledger because, again, you know, the, the uber bearish camp is always wrong. The uber bullish camp is always wrong. Those two things never happen. 
markets don't always go up and they don't always go down. So again, you know, if you can set aside the uber bearish stuff or the uber bullish stuff, the truth always lies somewhere in the middle when it comes down to your investments, your portfolio. You know, what's going on with AI right now is clearly unsustainable, but it doesn't mean, and this is, this is the important thing, it can go on for a while. As we saw back in 1999, and we're probably in the early phase of this particular bubble, in AI. I mean, it's just really AI has been going on for a decade, right? We've been talking about artificial intelligence for the last 10 years. It just grabbed national media attention early this year. So if you go back and kind of look at the 90s, the internet boom didn't happen in 1999. It started back in 1990. It just didn't grab national media attention until 1999, and everything just went crazy through the roof. You know, I told a story about, you know, back then I'd go into the office in the morning, we'd buy SDLI and JDS Uniphase and Cisco Systems, market would open, We'd sell them all at market open, make 100% return on those stocks, and then go home for the day. That was, that was the whole trading day. You were done. <clears throat> and wash, rinse, and repeat the next day. You just did it over and over and over again. Interestingly enough, if you owned JDS Uniphase and Cisco Systems at the peak of the market in 1999 and didn't sell them, you're still underwater today, 23 years later. You still have not gotten back to where it was trading back then. A lot of those companies are even no longer around. Sun Micro, SDLI, varieties of others. They were sold off. They went bankrupt. Whatever, whatever happened. Enron. If you don't know who Enron is, go watch the movie. <laughs> Tell you all you need to know about the insanity going on back in 1999. Anyway. All right. Have a great day. Uh, make sure and subscribe to our Before the Bell channel. That's where we do our three minutes of markets and money every morning. We're going to have that up here in just a few minutes uh, for today. But make sure you're subscribed over there. And also, please subscribe to this channel. We've just crossed 20,000 subscribers. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. It's been a long, hard road just to get this far. So I'd like to keep going here and keep doing it. So uh, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Help us out as well. Uh, also, tell your friends. We always appreciate it. Anyway, have a great day. See you back here tomorrow for Wednesday. I'll join Danny Ratliff in the morning. We'll talk about stuff, as always, right here on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.